Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Genesis 50, verses 1 to 21. That's Genesis 50, verses 1 to 21. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 43. Um, Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Genesis 50, verses 1 to 21. This is the word of the Lord. Then Joseph fell on his face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, as he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abram bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring, a, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, everyone. So you can uh, turn in your Bibles, unless you're still there, from the scripture reading to Genesis 50. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 to 21 this morning.
but before we dive in, um, just thinking about the themes that we're going to be considering. Uh, the 20, 20th century for Christians in Russia was a really hard century. Um, actually, in a number of ways, at a number of times, uh, Sarah Zilstra wrote an article that was, I believe, on the Gospel Coalition website, What the Soviets Intended for Siberia, God Intended for Good. Um, so you can kind of see where she's going with this. But she wrote that between 1921 and 1980, the Soviets killed 20 million Christians, according to some estimates. Stop to try to try to let that number sink in and what it would be like to be a Christian living through that time. Many pastors were killed. Uh, many Christians and pastors were exiled to Siberia. Okay? Labor camps, many died there. But fast forward to somewhat recently and she writes this. The Siberian church is so strong <laughs> because the communists, communists sent a great many pastors there. Now the Siberian church is sending me, this pastor, as a missionary back to Moscow and other places. So they sent these pastors to Siberia. Why? To completely neutralize their impact because they were trying to rid the Soviet Union of organized religion and certainly Christianity probably chiefly among them. And instead, the church is thriving in Siberia and sending missionaries to other parts of Russia. Isn't that a picture of God's ways that are higher than our ways? I mean, sometimes, oftentimes, mysterious and sometimes maddening in how mysterious they are. But, as we sung, marvelous. <laughs> his grace and his mercy and his sovereign purposes, his providence is marvelous. And we ought to sing of it. So we're going to see it here at the end of the book of Genesis. We have been seeing it in the life of Joseph and his brothers. So here we are, the last two weeks in our series through the book of Genesis. Um, the plan at this point is to finish next week and then... Um, the Sunday before Christmas, we'll have a, a message focused on Christmas, and then, Lord willing, we'll start the Sermon on the Mount in January, okay? So G Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 to 7, Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. So that's the plan at this point, all right? So um, there is an outline in the bulletin. It's fairly bare, but uh, hopefully it'll help kind of navigate us through uh, these 21 verses here in chapter 50. All right, so Tyler read the passage, and uh, we're not going to read the whole of verses 1 to 14 here, but where we have been, just a, a little bit of context here, the death of Jacob and his burial in Canaan, uh, if, if we think about it, they moved the family, Joseph moved his family to Egypt from Canaan, and Jacob had 17 years there with his son, his son who he thought was dead, Joseph. And there is no ink about that time. 
about those 17 years. And then there's all of this ink about Jacob's death and the funeral procession. So that's not by accident. God is intending to focus on some things. So we should focus on these things. This isn't here just, well, I guess you're supposed to write about his death. Um, there's purpose here. Okay, so the question is, what is the significance? Why spend so much time on the death and funeral procession and burial of the patriarch Jacob? Well, it's because it's a foreshadowing, and it's also a rehearsal of the exodus to come. Okay, did you see the language? Did you hear some of the echoes in the language in these verses that Tyler read a few minutes ago? Look at verse 5. So, <clears throat> the Egyptians, you know, are weeping for Jacob for 70 days, which is actually pretty shocking. A pharaoh was mourned for for 72 days, traditionally. So in other words, Jacob is treated like a king. He's really honored in a significant way. He's the father of the one that saved the country, right? So um, there's all this weeping, and then Joseph says to Pharaoh, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in the tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father. Verse 7, so Joseph went up, same verb, to bury his father. With him went up, same word. All the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Verse 9, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Huh. Chariots and horsemen. They're also present at the Exodus, right? And this term company is translated army in Exodus 14. The army that's pursuing the Israelites at that point. So there's a lot of echoes of the coming Exodus that are represented in this section. Okay, so it's a foreshadowing of the exodus to come. You could say it's an early exodus, a rehearsal. It's almost like Jacob, with his dying command that he be buried in Egypt, in, in, um, not in Egypt, but in Canaan, it's almost like the patriarch is saying, here, let's do a dry run. No pun intended with the Red Sea. I just thought of that now. Okay. Um, so the future exodus had already been declared by God, not just to Jacob, but to Abraham. Flip back to Genesis 15. <clears throat> the Lord, he knows the end from the beginning. He's in charge of all of human history. And so he can say all the way back in chapter 15, verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, pilgrims, nomads, temporary dwellers in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they will come out with great possessions okay so you can see the similarities the pointers to the future exodus that are present here in Genesis 50 and so in a sense it's 
foreshadowing. It's a rehearsal of that exodus to come. There's also some contrasts, right? So here, Jacob's family, the people of Israel, go with Egypt as friends rather than being nipped at the heels by these enemies, right? So actually, this passage is also foreshadowing an exodus that's way out in the future at this point, okay? Hang with me here. Flip ahead to Isaiah 2. It's really interesting how major biblical themes get recapitulated and repeated over and over again. Sometimes they get expanded as they do get repeated. So Isaiah 2.2, Isaiah the prophet is prophesying of a day to come. And, you know, he's going to be speaking primarily to people who are in exile. So this is, you know, especially interesting and hope-giving to them. Isaiah 2.2, 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. So speaking metaphorically of their, their power and preeminence. Okay? And all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his ways. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Okay? So Israel is in Egypt, and Pharaoh, he's got his gods. They've got their gods, right? They're not worshiping Yahweh. Now, certainly... They were thankful for Joseph, and they respect him, and here, out of honor of him and his father, they go along. But this is foreshadowing the day when Yahweh's kingship will extend over all the nations, not just the people of Israel, but Egyptians will say, oh, we want to go up to the new Jerusalem. We want in on this, okay? I mean, you know, Jesus came and he died and he rose again. And before he ascended, he said, go and make disciples of all the nations so that there are people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation that are flowing in at the end to the new Jerusalem, the new creation. Okay, so as Bruce Waltke wrote, the creator's design will come to fruition when Israel lives in the promised land and a son of Judah rules the nations. So one day, all the people of God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation are going to dwell in the promised land, new heavens and new earth, and a son of Judah, we looked at that prophecy last week in chapter 49, the Lord Jesus will rule the nations, right? So, okay, so what? <laughs> What's the purpose? Like, how does this, how is this relevant for us? How does this apply to us, this rehearsal, this foreshadowing. Well, Jacob said, my bones are not supposed to stay in Egypt. The future of God's people is in the promised land, in Canaan. So that's where I want you to bury me. He knew, and Joseph does too, because he says, when, when the exodus happens, I want you to take my bones with you. 
So Jacob and Joseph knew the story of God's people, that their destiny, that their future was not in Egypt. It was in the promised land. And so they gave this command. It was their faith that led them to give this command, bury us there. And we are following in their pilgrim footsteps. Um, actually, Tracy read it from Hebrews chapter 11. They were looking to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Okay, so our faith also looks ahead to that city with foundations, to that promised land, the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation, and that's where our home is, and that's what we long for, and that's where we live for. That's where our heart is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we, we don't try to find our treasure, our home. We don't try to make heaven on earth, right? We're, we're free from that because we have an eternal home with God, and so we're actually set free to give and serve and live as pilgrims, holding on to things lightly because... Our treasure is out in the future. We are actually promised paradise. The big picture story of the Bible is we were created in paradise. Paradise was lost through sin. The land of Canaan was supposed to be kind of like a little, a little mini paradise, a pointer. But it was only a foreshadowing. It was only a signpost. That's why Abraham lived in a tent in the land of promise because he knew that this wasn't it ultimately. Jesus came, and here he's dying on the cross, and that thief said, remember me. And what does he say to him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm bringing back paradise. And then one day it will come down, new heavens and new earth, and we will all come home to our full and final paradise, the place we've always longed for, that we've been waiting for all along. So the patriarchs had their hearts in the right place. They knew where their hope was. Their hope was in the right place. They knew this earth wasn't their home. So they put all their chips, they moved all their chips onto the hope of glory square. And that's what we ought to do as well. Let's move all of our chips onto the hope of glory square. Listen to 1 Peter 1.13. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. There's all kinds of stuff we can hope for in this life, but it can so easily be taken from us or blown up. And then where are we? God doesn't want our hopes to be fragile and easily shaken. Or let's say we hope for something and it comes and then we go, oh, now what do I hope for? We need something else and something else and something else. But we have a living hope. And so we set our hope fully on the paradise to come. So Jesus, even in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's coming. Our Lord and Savior went away. He is preparing a place for us, John 14. And he will return to bring us up and home when it's ready, and when he returns. So our hope is not just that we go to heaven when we die, though that's certainly our hope. But our hope is not to live this kind of, you know, ethereal, disembodied, you know, floating in the cloud sort of existence for eternity. No. 
Our eternal hope is new heavens, new earth, new resurrected bodies where we live in the new Jerusalem forever. Like, don't we all long for immortality? Don't we all long for the, for the grave not to get the last word? We want to live forever. And God likes matter. He likes stuff. He gave us bodies. And Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. He's the prototype. And it's coming one day for us as well. So we set our hope fully there. We long to be clothed with immortality in that perfect paradise, that home of righteousness, the city with foundations, our eternal homeland. So I think oftentimes that's really, it just kind of feels like pie in the sky. Like how does that, how's that actually supposed to intersect and help me today? Anybody ever feel that way? Okay, a few of you are willing to be honest. Um, I feel that way oftentimes. So this was really helpful. I think this is something that probably you need to discuss in community group today. You need to ponder um, because it has a million applications. But I heard Tim Keller once say this, and he was speaking in reference to prayer. So I'll read this slowly. And here's what he says. I think you'll see how it connects to what I've been saying. Never petition, never ask God for something without remembering that everything you're asking for is already yours in God. What does he mean? He means, so if you're sick, ask for healing, but remember that the greatest healing has already been provided. If you're lonely, pray for relationships, new and deeper, and for community. But remember that the greatest relationship and friend has already been provided. Do you see how this applies in a million different ways and we need to tease this out? Because here's the thing. This is both, it, it doesn't promote resignation like, well, you know, this world is not my home, so, you know, none of this matters. I can just be stoic and kind of like not care. I don't need to ask for anything because I've got heaven. No. Those are good things. Asking for healing. Sometimes the kingdom comes like the Lord breaks in and miraculously heals and gives, you know, himself, brings glory to himself and blessing to his people. But sometimes he doesn't. And so is that because we don't have enough faith? No. We live in a broken world. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and sometimes God says no when you ask for it to be removed. But he gives grace sufficient, and he has purposes for that thorn. And one day, that thorn's going to be totally taken away. And it's going to be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, perfect joy, fullness forever. So actually, the healing is already yours, even if we die of cancer. So in Hebrews 11, some people die at the hand of the sword. Some people are delivered from the hand of the sword. Well, which is it? Yeah, both. You have to trust me whether the race set before you is one of deliverance or one of death. 
one of physical health or physical suffering, one of relational richness or one of relational lack. Trust me. Where are you setting your hope? Where are we setting our hope? So do you see how that promotes not resignation, but a realism, and it reinforces the fact that God doesn't promise all our desires will be filled on this earth, not even our godly desires. But it also doesn't say that your desires don't matter. They totally matter, and they're all, all of our sanctified desires are going to be fully fulfilled forever in the new heavens and the new earth fullness of joy forever. So let me just read it again here. Never petition without remembering that everything you're asking for is already yours in God. Think finances. I mean, we can like need to make ends meet and we can get stressed out about all of that and that can be a significant school of faith. So of course you pray that the bills get paid. But you know what? The most important thing is that everything is yours. You're actually going to inherit the earth because you are in Christ. He is the son of the king of the universe, and everything belongs to him. And if you belong to him, everything belongs to you. You're an heir of the world. You're going to reign with Christ. So better to have Jesus and be at the Sunday breakfast mission than to have everything and not have Jesus. So never petition without remembering that everything you're asking for is already yours in God. So if you're sick, ask for healing, but remember that the greatest healing has already been provided. If you're lonely, pray for relationships, new and deeper, and for community. But remember that the greatest relationship and friend has already been provided. Let us, brothers and sisters, set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. The patriarchs, they were pilgrim trailblazers. And Hebrews 11 is saying, follow in their footsteps. Let us also run the race that they ran in faith and setting our hope in the right place. Okay? So that's the foreshadowing and the rehearsal. Second point here. We look now at verses 15 to 21, and we're going to look at Joseph's tears and his faith and his love. So let's actually read this section together, these verses, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Do you remember how Esau had planned to do that? Like, after my father's dead, then I'm going to get him. So maybe they had that in mind. I mean, at least if there's something good here, they at least call what they did evil. <laughs> they at least call it what it was. Okay, verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. They didn't even go directly to him. They sent a message. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph... Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Again, they're using the strongest language for sin that the Bible has. So that's a good thing, but it sure seems like 
they've made this up out of fear. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. The author is clearly tying this appeal to their fear. So we see how Joseph responds to this. He weeps. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came then. They followed that message by coming to him, and they fell down before him. The book ends with the dreams in chapter 37. They've certainly been fulfilled. And said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph doesn't want them to be his slaves. <laughs> they sold him as a slave. He doesn't want to enslave them. He wants to bless and provide for them. And he's hopefully illustrated that very clearly for the last 17 years. So he weeps. And he says, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? I'm not the avenger. God is. And God intended to work things out that I would be a tool in his hand to keep you alive and to keep the covenant promises alive and to keep a whole lot of other people alive. So how could I then exact vengeance? It's not my role. It would go against God's plan. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This deep mystery of God's sovereignty and responsibility of human beings. William Cooper, I've quoted this before, just one stanza from his God Moves in Mysterious Ways, deep in minds of unfathomable skill, of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So again, there's mystery here. We're going to consider that some more in a minute. But he is working his wise and good sovereign will. Verse 21, so do not fear. He says it twice. You see it there, verse 19, and again in verse 21. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he, spoke, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You know, while we're speaking of bookends, I, I didn't notice this till this week. Joseph is the anti-Cain. Think about the bookends of the book of Genesis. Cain, am I my brother's keeper? As the blood of Abel is crying out from the ground. And Abel hadn't done anything to deserve that violent assault. And Joseph's brothers did deserve him to punish them. And instead, he provides for them and blesses them. It's the anti-Cain. Bookends on the book of Genesis. Okay? So, Joseph's tears, his faith, and his love. First thing, why is he weeping? Why does he weep? It's going to be difficult. We can't know for sure, but we can kind of ponder it and tease out some possibilities, right? I mean, certainly he's saddened by their mistrust, their willingness to lie to him again out of distrust of him. <laughs> like, the last 17 years haven't meant anything. You're willing to lie again to save your skin? 
They're willing to lie to their father and then lie that their father said something, again, out of fear. Like he's been kind to them. He's provided for them for 17 years. Do they think it's all been an act? Like, are they calling the sincerity of it all into question? I mean, really, have I given you any reason to be afraid of me like this? It's bad enough that you sold me and cut me off from my family, and now you're withdrawing from me again out of fear that I'm going to retaliate? Like, you want to just isolate me again? You think I've just been biding time until our father dies? Like, oh, the grief and the sadness that this must have brought to him. So we see his tears. All this sorrow added to previous sorrows. But he doesn't respond vindictively. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't, you know, tongue-lash them here. He weeps. And we see his faith. It's so radiant, beautiful. Faith in God's sovereign goodness and wisdom. So his brothers were jealous. They hated him. They plotted to kill him. They sold him into slavery. He lost his home. He lost his family. He was displaced. He's alone. Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape. He is unjustly put in prison. The cupbearer of Potiphar forgets about him. He's in there two more years. And then this. But what comes out? Not complaining but humbly making it clear that the Lord, all along, the Lord is with Joseph. He's the one that gave him success. There's no whiff of whining. He's not blaming his troubles on others, even though there are others who are guilty. He is meekly trusting the Lord. There's no attempts at retaliation. He's not taking matters into his own hands. He's not eaten up by bitterness and resentment. He's not lashing out with vindictiveness. He's here freely forgiving, and he's even blessing those who curse him. How in the world? You see, we're, we should ask how, because don't you want to live like this? Beautiful example to follow in his footsteps. It's by faith in the sovereign grace and character of God. It is fruit of his trust in God's sovereignty and providence. So Greg Morse wrote this. He says, Beaten and betrayed by his brothers, God was sending me. Resisted Potiphar's wife and subsequently jailed, God was sending me. Received an unfulfilled promise, leaving him in prison for two more years, God was sending me. Standing before the men who sold him as a slave and stole him from, from years with his father and younger brother, God sent me here, not you. So his faith guards him from being eaten up by anger and bitterness, and it issues forth amazingly in love. <laughs> he repays their evil with good. He provides for his brothers. He doesn't want them to grovel. I mean, he could. He could enjoy that. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So what is the logic? What is the divine logic of being able to forgive and love like this on the basis of what? Like, what, what's going on here? When they say, 
you know, here's what dad said, you got to forgive us. Joseph says, I'm not in God's place. I'm not God. And God is actually in charge here, and he meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. So don't fear. I will bless and be kind to you. So what's that logic? Like, what's going on there? He's able to forgive on the basis of God's sovereignty, not necessarily even on the genuineness of the apology of the brothers, at least here. That, you know, theology of forgiveness in the Bible can be difficult sometimes and complicated, but this is worth looking. This is amazing. It's his confidence in the sovereignty and ultimately the good purposes of God that enable this response. Look at it again a little bit more closely here. 50-20. You meant, you intended evil against me. But God, it doesn't say, rode in on the white horse and cleaned it up. It says he intended, he meant it for good. So Joseph wasn't living the divine plan B, you know, where God kind of looked and go, oh, no. They just sold him into slavery. I need to like hurry up and you know get this thing figured out how to how to straighten things out. Let's see, maybe we'll. No, all along God intended that this would be the plan. God only has one plan, Plan A. So the sovereign good purpose and plan of God is behind all these roller coaster twists and turns of human events. So Joseph suffered. The brothers, despite their sin, were kept alive through him. Promises were fulfilled. So that actually could be encouraging to the future people of God in both senses. If you suffer unjustly, it can be encouraging because God was with Joseph and he was at work ultimately in and through all that mess. And it could be encouraging to people like the brothers who screw up. <laughs> and God still blessed them and still worked his goodwill in their lives. You see? Because guess what? This was encouraging to people in exile many, many years later. Why were they in exile? Because of their sin. They were in exile because of their idolatry and their rebellion and their sin and sticking their fingers in their ears to God. That was judgment. And they were sent out of Jerusalem and into exile. But God spoke to them just like Joseph spoke to his brothers. Did you, maybe, I don't know if you tie this together, but look at the last verse there, 21, that we've been looking at. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Flip to Isaiah 40. book of Isaiah is filled with all kinds of judgment because of the sin of his people, and they're going to be exiled to Babylon, but he prophesies that one day they're going to be brought home. Even before it happens, it's prophesied here. And listen to the language. Comfort, Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak 
tenderly to Jerusalem. I'm coming for you. Same language. Comfort and speak tenderly. That's what Joseph did to his brothers. So we see his tears. We see his faith. And we see his love. And it's an example to us. It was all predicated on, all grounded on, based in his faith in the sovereign goodness of God to work out his purposes. So last point, God's ways. They are mysterious, aren't they? So we can have hindsight, Joseph, we can look at this and go, oh, look at how cool that is, how beautiful. But, you know, if you're in prison after a year of a broken promise from the cupbearer or whatever your life equivalent is, we can say, God, what in the world are you doing? Or go back to Siberia. Imagine some of these pastors or their families that don't have the dad or the husband any longer, and they're starving to death. What are you doing? Here we've trusted you and faithfully followed, and his ways are mysterious. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says it so clearly. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, God speaking to us. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So he is infinitely wise. His ways and his thoughts are infinitely above ours. Thankfully also, his steadfast love is higher than the heavens, okay? Not just his wisdom, but also his steadfast love. Um, so his ways are higher. His humility is lower. His love is deeper. His mercy is deeper than our sin. His heart is magnanimous and wide open, wider than we could believe. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of God in Christ. But certainly his ways are mysterious. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. The ultimate illustration, the ultimate evidence of that is the cross, right? Judas, what Judas intended for evil, God intended for good. The cross is not plan B. What the Jewish leaders intended for evil, God intended for good. What Pilate intended for evil, God intended for good. God doesn't have a plan B. The cross is plan A. So think about this. I, this kind of struck me um, this, a week ago or two weeks ago, something like that. Imagine the conversation with the Apostle Paul meeting Stephen in heaven. Where are those two first in the same place in the book of Acts? Saul is ravaging the church and he's putting people to death and he's dragging people to prison and he's standing there while they stone Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And Stephen, like Joseph, like Jesus, says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So Paul gets converted on the Damascus Road, and he always knew that he was the chief, chief of sinners because he persecuted the church of God. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
right? But imagine that conversation. Do you think Stephen was bitter? Do you think he'd be reluctant to forgive the Apostle Paul? No, God actually, careful, ordained that Saul stand there and approve of that murder. He ordained that Paul would be a killer before he would be a missionary. That he would assent to the murder of Stephen before he would bring the good news of the murder of the Messiah to the nations. So again, God's mysterious purposes higher than ours. He had purposes in Paul to keep him humble. I am the chief of sinners. I persecuted the church. But of course, Stephen forgave his killers. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Come here, Brother Saul, and probably gave him a big hug. So let me give you a couple other, well, let's see, one example, and then close with a, a, a closing application. Jonathan Edwards is a hero of mine. Um, if you only ever read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in high school, you know, as it got probably, you know, uh, mocked and criticized by your English literature teacher or something like that, you need to read some more Edwards because he knew his heaven better than he knew his hell, okay? And he was just captivated by God. So <clears throat> there's a great little article by Dane Ortland, who is somewhat of an Ed Edwards scholar, and I'm going to read from some of this because I think this powerfully illustrates the point. Um, especially if you don't know anything about Jonathan Edwards. So in the spring of 1750, Edwards is probably the best theologian America has ever known, okay? In the spring of 1750, the central discussion at Northampton Church, where he was a pastor in southern Massachusetts, was not how to honor their faithful pastor for almost a quarter century of diligent labors among them. So he'd been their pastor like 24 years. Rather, it was how to most expeditiously get rid of him. In late June, the church held a series of meetings, and they summarily fired their pastor by a vote of 10 to 1. Of 253 voting members, 230 voted for him to be dismissed and 23 for him to stay. So his church was not filled with starry-eyed Jonathan Edwards fanboys. Okay? Bernard Bartlett, a member of the church, distributed a pamphlet in 1735 asserting that his pastor, quote, was as great an instrument as the devil had on this side of hell to bring souls to hell. Okay, I haven't gotten that email yet or that, thankfully, so <laughs> I'm grateful. Um, so anyway, he had his critics. The way that he responded in the face of all of this was pretty conspicuous. David Hall, a sympathetic pastor in the area, wrote, I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good, meaning God, overbalancing all imaginable ills of life. So Ortland writes, in light of the adversity he faced, what for Jonathan Edwards was the result of the following equation? God's sovereignty plus my pain equals, he writes, divine coldness, Fatalism? Here is the answer for Edwards, which is the secret to sitting through catastrophic rejection with a happiness that's out of reach of circumstances. Edwards had happily nestled into the conviction 
that the entire universe and all of human history, down to the particular flutter angle of a falling leaf or footfall of an ant outside his Northampton home, were the inexorable outworking of a heavenly rule and plan so comprehensive that they knew no ceiling or boundaries. So when ordinary faithfulness earned him the rejection of his church members instead of their embrace, Edwards did not go into psychological meltdown. He already had a deeper embrace held by one whom Edwards knew ordered all things. When 230 people voted to fire him, Edwards knew that it was God dismissing him from Northampton Church. Why get bitter at the people? A greater mind was ordering his life. God's love was working through their hate. He didn't know how his life would turn out as he was fired, but Ortland writes, he had settled his heart into the tranquil conviction that from heaven's perspective, all was going according to plan. So he quieted his spirit, he calmly submitted, he yielded to God's sovereignty. Edwards had learned how to be softened and gentilized by pain instead of hardened and calloused by it. God help us. So, final kind of applicational thought, and it's another thing I'm going to read from somebody else, okay, called Wait for the Ending by Scott Hubbard. And then we're going to sing a very fitting song, he is, worthy, is He Worthy, by Andrew Peterson, okay? So, wait for the ending. Faith in a sovereign God does not prevent us from being, from sometimes feeling bewildered about what our sovereign God is doing. And then this author quotes 1 Corinthians 2.9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And probably you've heard that message, you know, at a funeral or someplace where it's like, Heaven's going to be so awesome, which heaven's going to be so awesome, but actually that passage is used about something God's already done. The point is, if you were an Old Testament saint, you had no idea how God was going to fulfill these promises. So he quotes John Frame. He says, Had I been living in the Old Testament period, I would have had very little idea, despite the hints of the coming Messiah, of how God would resolve the problem. Were I of a skeptical bent, I might even have tempted, been tempted to say that God could not possibly solve the problem. How can he be both merciful and righteous? How can he pardon guilty criminals, spiritual criminals? But God does solve the problem in a way that none of us would likely have expected, in a way that amazes us and provokes from us shouts of praise. Yes, God does solve the problem. In a moment, God revealed what he had long prepared for those who love him, a resolution so stunning that no prophet could see it, no wise man could hear it, and not even the most fanciful dreamer could imagine it. Angels themselves longed to look into the eternal counsels that finally, after centuries of waiting, sent a boy to save the world. The grand story of redemption and hundreds of smaller stories within that grand story reminds us of the kind of stories God loves to tell. Stories where everything seems to go wrong and happy endings feel impossible. Stories where, for what feels like far too long, we are perplexed at his plans. Stories with endings that defy our despair and usher in a joy beyond all reckoning. If we could see now how God will resolve our confusion, dispel our disappointment, and heal our broken hearts, we would no longer be living in a story and we would no longer need hope. Hope that is seen is not hope.
for who hopes for what he sees, Romans 8.24. In our moments, in our own moments of bewilderment, our role is not to know the ending of this story, but to wait for the ending. And in the meantime, to live as faithful characters. And we do so in part by remembering with Paul that the most perplexing problem in this world's history has already come and has already resolved. No matter how confusing our own stories are, God has already brought to pass the harder and happier ending. He's already made a way for his justice and mercy to kiss. He's already turned a cross into a throne and a grave into a footstool. He's already broken the curse that hung over all of Adam's race. To us, it may feel impossible for God to weave the frayed threads of our broken dreams into something beautiful. And from all human perspectives, it may be. But compared to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what feels impossible to us is a small thing for God. Today we are living in the grandest story ever told, but we are not yet at the ending. We walk in the wilderness, not the promised land. We carry a sword, not the spoil. We look up to a dark night, not the dawn. If our eyes could see the solution, if our ears could hear the coming deliverance, if our hearts could imagine the ending, the final rescue would not be so wonderful, so happy beyond expectation. Beware then of judging your story before God reveals his hand. If you are in Christ, the finale is sure. What your eye cannot see now, what your ear cannot hear now, what your heart cannot imagine now, your God is preparing for you. Trust him, love him, and wait for the ending. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are in sovereign control that you not only know the end from the beginning, but you have written it, and you will bring it about. We thank you that you have rescued us from the domain of darkness, the house of slavery. The ultimate exodus is ours. We're free in Christ. And we are traveling together as your people, Christian pilgrims, all the way home to the promised land. And it's ours. So help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. From you and through you and to you are all things. Help us trust you. and wait for the very good ending. We thank you that it will come. In Jesus' name.